Hello and welcome to the Gridiron Show, the good, the bad and the ugly from the world of the NFL. And there was plenty of bad and plenty of ugly this week. But you know what? Plenty of good as well. One of the most exciting Sundays, at least in the 5 p.m. window, we've seen for some time. Five one-score games, an unbelievable Sunday night football matchup. And one of the worst Monday night footballs in recent memory, which is really saying something. So there's loads for us to dig into on the show this week. And as always, well, not as always, but when it's the A-team, I'm always joined by these two. Matthew Sherry, Simon Clancy. How are we doing, gents? Wonderful, mate. I'm able to do this podcast because Liam is now pedal to the metal getting the next magazine out. I don't really have to worry about it anymore. So that's lovely. In a good place because of that. Astonishingly, astonishingly bad. Uh, Sai has written in the next issue. I'll let him talk about this, but he's written the longest piece I think we've ever published. And I've not read it yet, so I'm looking forward to seeing it. Matthew's last job was to commission a gargantuan Russell Wilson anthology and just said, write as much as you like. So I did, 11,836 words. <laughs> you've literally done a dissertation on Russell Wilson. I literally have. Four beautiful sections. The backbone of, of it is Wilson as the NFL revolutionary and college football revolutionary that he is, and the guy that has always faced the sorts of battles that most people don't have to, whether it's height, whether it's personality, those sorts of things, and then just telling the story through NC State, Wisconsin, the draft, and his Seattle career, talking to people on all levels who have worked with him, played with him, coached him, etc. But yeah, it was fun, interesting. It was my part and gift to say. I mean, I could. It was yeah, like what a gift. Basically, huh? the piece you always wonder, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, he's going to be publishing that into poster form and just plastering it across it that room there. Walls. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just so he can read quotes from it every time. I'm thinking in the bathroom, just having it dotted around the mirror so that when you sit down on the John, you can just be like... I mean, he'll, do, he'll literally need to double the size of his house to get it on a house. Using everyone. He'll buy a castle. Uh, good. So you're getting real value for money if you buy the latest edition of Gridiron Magazine or if you're a subscriber. I also had to... Um, I said to Liam, we should redraft the 2012 draft, uh, the first round of it, which I did last night. And it's a very, very interesting thing. I have to say, towards the back end, I was struggling to get competent players into the first round. <laughs> I even considered giving the Giants Cole Beasley at pick 32. That's how uh, that's, that's how bad the situation had become. And you also but don't know how long ago it was because the Giants had pick 32. That's certainly exactly. hasn't been anywhere near exactly. <laughs> Four Hall of Famers, one kicker in the first round so yeah it's a uh, this is a quality first round the truly astonishing thing is that we need to do 2013 soon because that's the worst first round in living memory uh, that's that's a draft where the third round from 1 through 32 is better than the first round 1 through 32 man I would talk about this but me and, and Sai had about an hour we found about five undrafted free agents that we put in the. I think there's three undrafted free agents in this first round actually but there were, I think we found about five or six that went into the um, that went into the 2013, the worst draft of all time. Brilliant. Right, let's get into our good, bad, and the ugly. You talked about Russell Wilson. I want to talk about the best game of the week, maybe the best game of the season so far. The Arizona Cardinals beating the Seattle Seahawks 37-34 in overtime, and the evidence that. After allowing 519 yards to a Cliff Kingsbury offense, the Seahawks have allowed the most yards through six games in NFL history. It's been a kind of ongoing conversation that Russell Wilson saves this team for the last few years, but never more so than this year, where 
unless he is literally inch perfect, they're going to lose games like this. And I legitimately feel sorry for the man. Yeah, the let Russ cook movement essentially seems to be a movement that they've decided that their defence is so bad that the only way they're going to win is score loads of points because that conservative run game that they've had ever since Wilson joining, you know, whether it's Marshall Lynch, Chris Carson, Robert Turbin, running back by committee, however they've tried to do it, which has essentially then relied on Russell bringing them back in the fourth quarter, is just not going to work anymore. There was an amazing stat. They are 52-0, and or they were 52-0, and since Russell started back in 2012, when they had a lead of four points or more at halftime. Now, they were 10 points up against the Cardinals. So they're now 52-1. and one. But just astonishing and, uh, and kind of underlines that sort of conservative kind of movement that they've always had. And finally, now, I think the realisation has kicked in that they're not going to win games because the defence is so bad. I mean, they can't get any pressure on the quarterback whatsoever. None. And that obviously affects every other unit. And I, I think, I don't know what you think, Matt, but it wouldn't surprise me if Seattle were looking at a Ryan Kerrigan or a... JJ Watt type uh, just, deadline. Just before Matt answers that, nine sacks through six games, and they didn't register a single quarterback hit on Kyler Murray. Not one. You also, I mean, again, like I said with Green Bay last week, you also have to start to pick the bones out of the schedule so far. I mean, they were fortunate to beat the Vikings, who were terrible. They were fortunate to beat the Patriots, who were terrible. There and that pains me to say, but it's true. And you know, the, every game has basically been close because they can't stop anybody on defense. And it comes back to you know, we said about how we thought the problem with the NFC is that every team, potentially barring the Buccaneers, has a, a fatal flaw. And this is this is theirs now. This was one of those weird games where literally about 10 things needed to go right for Arizona to win in the second half. And they all did, including one of the worst, genuinely one of the worst unnecessary roughness calls I've ever seen to extend a drive that would have given Seattle possession probably close to Arizona's half and Arizona ended up scoring a touchdown. But there is cause for big concern with, with the defence. I mean, they just have to trade for one or two players. I mean... They're not going to win the Super Bowl without improving their defence. And it's so frustrating for Wilson, I imagine, that having had the dreadful offensive talent he's had around him for so many years, he's now got two legitimate one and two receivers, an offensive line that's played really well now. And yeah, you look at the other side of the ball and it's dying. Now, Jamal Adams will improve it. They looked a lot better on defence when he was there. Uh, But yeah, they need help. And, And they need help everywhere, basically. I mean... You know, I would be just going and trying to get the two or three best defensive players you can, except for Lyman. From a perspective of uh, Arizona, I mean, they didn't capitalise on the two turnovers in regulation, taking no points off those and considering one of them. With the big run back and the DK Metcalf, ridiculous, unbelievable chase back to, to stop the tackle, put them in the red zone and they didn't manage to convert that. I mean, they are a frustratingly coached team who probably could have, with the balance of play, won this game in regulation by a score, by two scores, possibly. You know, this is a team that should have won this game relatively handily based on the fact that when you haven't got perfect Russell Wilson, that team's not a good football team. And yet, I think Russell Wilson, the, the two touchdown passes to Tyler Lockett were both astonishing throws. Like... That's the thing. Even when he has three bad throws that result in interceptions, he still has those in his locker. So Arizona... I think two of the two of the picks were miscommunications as well, to be fair. Again, just one of those games, like it happens to them. I want to, I'm going to move one of our good into a bad just because I had to watch the game. So I'm calling the uh, Monday Night Football game bad, even if there was some funny stuff to come out of it. Uh, <laughs> can we talk about the Detroit Lions being three and three? I mean, it's mad. You're looking at two ways, actually. Three and three is about right. They definitely should have won in week one when they just blew it against the Bears. 
Well, they absolutely should have lost this game. So it's interesting, though, because ultimately I still think it needs to be 12, 11, 12 wins for Patricia to have any chance of sticking around because of what preceded him. I mean, they basically were better than 8-8 eight eight every every year for three years before he got there. So, yeah, I think it's fool's gold. I mean, they're still not a good football team. And Matt Stafford, you know, watching him make them throws at the end of the game, a reminder to me that I, I can't think of a quarterback in this era, we talk about Wilson, who has been so consistently underutilised as Matt Stafford. Like, every time I watch him, at the end of games, I think, oh, you're actually just really good, but it's just never been right around you. They're, they're the best run-blocking team in the NFL. Their offensive line is outstanding. Taylor Deck has been brilliant. Frank Ragnow is one of the best centres in the NFL. And they're, they're getting DeAndre Swift now into the game. Adrian Peterson's yards per carry number has fallen from like 6.8 in the first game. I think it was 2.3 yards per carry, and it's gone down every week. But their defence is the second worst in the NFL behind Dallas. I mean, and Dallas is historically bad which just tells you, A, all you need to know about Matt Patricia because he's supposed to be a defensive guru and yet they can't stop anybody. Big decisions to make, not only off the field with Patricia and Bob Quinn. Kenny Golladay is a free agent after this season. You know, you really want to be locking up those guys and trying to eke out playoff caliber teams from the last couple of, or last few years of Matt Stafford's, um, Matt Stafford's reign, unless, you, unless they look to deal him. Because it would be great to see Matt Stafford in the playoffs on a winning team because he's a really good player. And I think he's probably been held back from what could have been a Hall of Fame career by the abject team that's been around him and the abject coaching. 28 fourth quarter comebacks, 34 game winning drives over the last 10 seasons, both the most in the NFL. But sometimes that's because you're on a bad team that puts you in that position. So certain quarterbacks don't need fourth quarter comebacks in order to win games of football. I mentioned Todd Gurley here because... For a guy who actually last season we saw him do it with the Rams where he stopped scoring a touchdown because he understood the game situation and talked about doing it six or seven times in his rookie season when he owned up to that in his post-game press conference. That play that led to the game-winning drive is just... It's astonishing. It's, how often do you see defenders turning to the, the touch judge and throwing their arms up in the air praying that it's going to be called a touchdown? The Lions have a word that they use in the huddle when they and uh, Matt Patricia apparently wouldn't hand over the sort of nomenclature in terms of what that was. But he said that um, there was a word in the huddle when they just allow our player to score. So they'll try and tackle him but and, and make it look as though they're doing their job, but really they won't. And especially as it happened the night before in the Penn State-Indiana game, exactly the same thing. And you saw Indiana players celebrating, jumping up and down when Penn State scored a touchdown. And all you do, fall two yards short of the line, and it's game Assuming your kicker can kick an 18-yard field goal, it's game over. But just for a veteran player like Gurley, and especially for somebody to come out and say, I've done that seven or eight times with... I mean, Todd, it's not hard to differentiate between the goal line and not the goal line. You <laughs> was unable to do so. So poor. The only undefeated team left in the NFL is the Pittsburgh Steelers after the Seahawks uh, loss on Sunday night football. They beat the only other undefeated team in the AFC, the Tennessee Titans, 27-24. And there was a fantastic second half comeback from Tennessee, which was not in any small part other than that. They had the one 75-yard touchdown drive, which was very impressive, but they got short field and, and Pittsburgh gave the ball up a little too easily in that second half and let them back into it. Yes, it was a missed field goal that prevented overtime, but all in all, particularly a first-half performance from the Steelers that was absolutely superb. And it's another one of those, they haven't been 6-0 and since, you know, the spoon was invented. It's just been ridiculous how this super successful team doesn't start seasons this well. And right now they're six and oh and looking as good as they are, Matthew. 
Yeah, I mean, I just thought this was a really good game between two really good teams, playoff teams. I mean, Tennessee, you know, the difference between the two is that Tennessee's defence is, is just bad. And I think that is a frustration for them. But the Steelers look, look fantastic. I mean, we talk so often about Kevin Colbert and the skill position talent that he's able to acquire. But it, it, it is actually astonishing when you look at some of the guys they've lost over the years as well. And you look at the fact that they had the greatest receiver of, it, of his generation blow his way out of town in Antonio Brown. For them to be fielding this kind of talent, and that they're young now as well, that's the thing, they've transitioned it. You know, we look at how diabolically bad the Patriots' offensive skill position talent is and contrast that with the way Pittsburgh have been able to seamlessly transition to these new young guys. It's, it's so impressive and, and really good for that division as well because, I mean, I can't wait for the game this weekend, but you want... You want a really good Steelers and Ravens teams going after each other. So I think perfect for the division too. History says you should put Pittsburgh into the Super Bowl. I mean, they should now be one of the two Super Bowl teams because that was only the fifth time in NFL history that two undefeated teams met in week seven or beyond. And in the previous four games, the winner has always played in the Super Bowl. So based on that, Pittsburgh will be one of your Super Bowl teams. And I, I agree with Matt. You know, Ben Roethlisberger coming off the injury is just slowly, slowly, each week is just stepping up, stepping up, stepping up that performance level. They're a really good team. And defensively, Minka Fitzpatrick hasn't played as well as he did last season, but is beginning to play to the level that we know he can. They can get consistent pressure. I mean, they, you know, it looks, they, they should be signing Bud Dupree to a long-term contract. And I, I was one, two years ago, who thought that wasn't going to happen because I thought it was a little bit inflexible. They haven't missed Javon Hargrave as good as he is. And they've managed to replace a really, really, really good inside linebacker in Devin Bush. I think TJ Watt is now approaching the level of JJ as best as well, which is astonishing because it's easy to forget now that JJ Watt is certainly nowhere near what he was, that he was Aaron Donald three years before Aaron Donald. Those are probably the two most dominant front seven defensive players, or certainly defensive linemen that we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years, probably since um, LT. So it's impressive. Question on that, because there's been a lot of talk after JJ Watt's very salty press conference after the Texans hammering at the hands of the Packers this weekend, that he could be a piece that they trade away as part of the next part of the Texans rebuild. What does somebody pay for him? Because I understand that when he's on the field and healthy, he can still be a a difference maker, but he's got a big contract. He's also got injury issues. The thought that he would get two ones like he might have done three years ago is is unthinkable. Definitely not two ones. I mean, I don't think I'd give up anything like a first-round pick for him. I mean, I think JJ Watt at this point in his career is a... I mean, he's a situational pass rusher, isn't he? That's what he should be. I think the problem, the problem with Houston is he's on the field far too much. He just... He doesn't have the dominance or durability anymore to be that player. So for me, it would be... I mean, a third-round pick? I mean, I would certainly wouldn't give up a second for him. He's got a diabolical injury history. He's in, what, his 10th year in the league? He's a situational pass rusher. It's, it's a low return. If anything, Houston would be trading him to do him a solid. The irony is the only GM that would pay a first for him is probably Bill O'Brien. <laughs> uh, let's get on to the bad from the NFL this week. And last night, I stayed up and watched Monday Night Football and disgusted by it. It was one of those games coming into it where you knew that we had two teams with good winning records who were very much in the playoff picture, the 5-1 and one Bears, the 4-2 and two Rams. But we've talked about how fortunate the Bears were to be in that position. And the Rams were 
four and two, but all four wins had come against the NFC East to only have seven wins between them on the season. So actually how good were that team? And the Rams showed up and the Rams played well, uh, you know, not spectacularly, but they did enough to beat a bad Bears team. The Bears offense, and I just want to give you some stats on it because they are legitimately woeful. They rushed for 49 yards last night, which means they've had four consecutive games with 65 rushing yards or less. The only time they've had four straight such games since the Super Bowl came in. The Bears, famously a historical running team, don't run the ball at all. And then there are six five-win teams in the NFC right now. I want to give you their point differentials. The Buccaneers are plus 80. The Cardinals are plus 57. The Rams are plus 52. The Packers are plus 38. The Seahawks are plus 31. And the Bears are minus two. (laughs) Uh, How is that even possible? (laughs) They're five and two and they've got a minus point differential. They're lacking some serious speed offense. And really, it comes back to, to Matt Nagy. I mean, he is supposed to be the offensive guru. That's what people were talking about when he came to Kansas City. I think he got lucky in that first year. But they're so slow on offense. I, I hold my hands up because I thought Anthony Miller was going to be a really good player. I loved him at Memphis. I thought David Montgomery was going to be a really good back. He's just got no second gear whatsoever. Alan Robinson, essentially, is the and Darnell Mooney are the pieces that hold that offense together. The line isn't very good apart from Cody Whitehair. They are a really, really bad team. And hopefully, I mean, I, I suspect they're going to lose enough games not to win that division. But I think there could be a scenario where they sneak into the playoffs because the NFC isn't great. I think the uh, the NFC West has to essentially just keep winning out, uh, you know, the other games where they're not playing each other. But you really don't want to see a, a really bang average Bears team in the playoffs because they are not very good. And that was a horrendous game last night. Uh, and I wouldn't I- roll out them finishing 5-11. and 11. <laughs> like they're just not they're just not very good are they like it's it's you've been waiting for this to happen it'll happen more times over the course of the season they just they've they've had an incredibly lucky season so far I mean they're just not good Green Bay will and and I'm not a huge lover and believer in Green Bay but they will wipe the floor with them twice now the as part of this conversation last night during the broadcast Brian Greasy part of that Monday Night Football crew said that Nick Foles told them in the build-up to this game that Nagy sometimes sends in a play call and Foles already knows it won't work because he won't have enough time after the snap. It's astonishing that your starting quarterback, who's only been starting for, what, three, four games now, is absolutely throwing your head coach under the bus like that. Who do I trust most, Nick Foles or Matt Nagy? I think I trust Nick Foles on this one, so... Yeah, I mean, that just says it all, really. And to be honest, unfortunately, I don't think they will finish 5-11, and 11, but it wouldn't surprise me if they finished 7-9 and nine and Nagy got whacked because they're only going to go as far as, as the decision behind their quarterback. Mitch Trubisky is not the right guy. It doesn't seem likely that the Nick Foles long-term is the right guy, and I think they'll probably just want to blow it up and, and move on because that offense is so stagnant. By the way, Matt, that, that Green Bay Packers team that you just mentioned – I wasn't on the show last week, but did they, how did they get on this weekend? Because I didn't, I didn't see what, what happened. Another good win, wasn't it, for the for the oh, Packers oh. against, the, <laughs> against against was it against another very bad football team? How many another team was has only got one win over the beat? Was this the Texans? Right? Yeah, was this the Texans against the team? Didn't they just go to overtime against the Tennessee Titans, who you said were the yeah, second best team in the I AFC? Mean, one oh, one oh, win tells I its mean, own story, doesn't I, it? I mean, you know, don't let facts get in the way of a good narrative, mate. 
<laughs> I hope the Packers are a bad team because uh, the 49ers have the Seahawks and the Packers uh, over the next two weeks. And so it'd be lovely to uh, come down this stretch of supposedly difficult games and win three or four of them. That would be lovely. Uh, well, we're talking about bad head coaching and bad head coaching decisions and play calling and everything else. Mike McCarthy, who saliently told <laughs> us that if teams win more than four divisional games, they're more likely to go to the playoffs. So that time spent studying analytics clearly really did a job. We also had Mike Nolan, and if you haven't seen this, it's truly astonishing, during his Monday press conference with the beat writers, rubbing his eye, realising he had Tabasco sauce on his finger and having to stop the press conference mid-flow because he had absolutely ruined his eye and had to... like. I know that's a silly thing, but it is just the level of ineptitude that this team has brought this season is honestly astonishing, considering that despite the fact that they've had their starting quarterback go down, they still have a serviceable backup, great wide receivers, a great running back, a defense they've spent a lot of money on, and they just lost by 22 points to Washington. I look at the Cowboys every year in isolation, and just think, God, this team is so talented. I mean, they've got by far the best three wide receiver corps in the NFL. It's astonishingly good. Like, Michael Gallup should absolutely be on the trading block to get them some defensive help. But hmm. I, I can't think I've ever seen a worse coaching job than this in a, in a season. It's just astonishingly bad. And I mean, you know, the Tabasco, I, I thought it was only opposing offences that were kryptonite for Mike Nolan, not, <laughs> not bloody... Hot sauce as well. It's just I mean, the, the Tabasco was more effective than the Mike Nolan's defense has been all season. It's <laughs> yeah, just, absolutely. Uh, and, and also, how good must Aaron Rodgers be to, to have made Mike McCarthy look competent for 14 I, years? I agree. In, yeah. in the argument over Rodgers, the, the biggest argument in his favor now is somehow winning a Super Bowl with this moron in charge of him. Like, it's just... Can I read you something? Remember when Peter King went and sat down with Mike McCarthy at his house outside Green Bay and he went into his, and he got all this football stuff and he, he had this massive sign that said less volume, more creativity. He studying college offences, Sean McVay, all this sort of thing. And, and King wrote, there's a flow chart for his proposed 14-person football technology department, including a six-person video unit and an eight-person analytics team. So he goes through all this sort of data about what he's going to be doing and how he's going to be spending time with pro football focus. And at the end, he puts the mathematical innovation hire would be crucial. This guy here has to see the world differently, McCarthy says, pointing to the pointing to that job on the flow chart. He's going to be very, very important. <laughs> he clearly didn't fill that position. <laughs> Uh, it was it was too important, and he could not find the right individual. Quite clearly, I think if you look on LinkedIn, that job's still available. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, from a Washington perspective, just two things to say. Firstly, Kyle Allen threw two very nice touchdown passes in this game. Uh, I'm not suggesting he's the quarterback of the future for them in any stretch of the imagination, but he can make a beautiful throw. And lovely to see Ron Rivera on Monday tweeting him ringing, ringing the, bell, the bell, going through his final uh, round of of. Uh, chemotherapy and he's never missed a game on the sidelines so as much as this Washington team there's kind of a conversation around them that their entire defensive line is all made up of first round picks and incredibly talented that if they get a quarterback and they get lots of draft picks and figure something out for next year that they could be a good team within a couple of years I don't think they're as the obvious comparison with a whole defensive line of first round draft picks is that 49ers team who went from the second overall pick to the Super Bowl. I don't think they've got that talent in reserve because of injuries, etc. But it's a team where the building blocks are there to make something good 
with Ron Rivera running it. I'm yeah, worried about the quarterback foot situation. Yeah. Like Kyle Allen just isn't good enough. And Kyle Allen strikes me yeah. as like a Nick Foles for the modern era kind of thing. That guy who's sort of a not maybe not a starter and maybe not a backup. He's like a he's a kind of a one and a half, not a not a one or a two kind of thing. Here's uh, Keenan would be another one, wouldn't he? Yeah, I thought the speech from Terry McLaurin after the game was, you know, they're the sort of kids that you want to you want to see the team being built around, and he's definitely, uh, you know, going to be a superstar. But I wonder whether the Dwayne Haskins thing is done. It feels like it is done, and it feels a little unfortunate for Haskins because he probably hasn't really had a fair crack of the whip. But he wasn't Rivera's quarterback, um, and he'll have the opportunity to pick it next April. Whether it's, you know, whether they find themselves in a position with Lawrence, whether it's Justin Fields or Trey Lance or or Kyle Wilson or Kyle Trask or whatever. So, we're very interested to see how it plays out. The final one from the bad was the Raiders' performance against the Buccaneers. And okay, the Buccaneers are a team that. Everyone is is sending to the Super Bowl now from the NFC, and maybe the strength of the the uh, conference is part of that. But twenty five point defeat to the Buccaneers, having beaten the Chiefs the week before, uh, being the most it's the most roller coaster of a team to follow this season. It feels like. I mean, is this just where the Las Vegas Raiders are, Matthew, or is there something they can do this season to turn it around and look like a legitimate playoff contender? I think I think there can be a playoff team. I mean, there's three things. Number one, that the, the final scoreline wasn't representative of the game. I mean, it was a. It was I want I want to be clear on this. It's a playoff contender. There are seven teams going to the playoffs from each conference. There will be playoff teams who are very much not playoff contenders this year. Yeah, but the, I mean, the, the way they beat the Chiefs was telling. I mean, it's a bad matchup for them as well. I mean, the reality is that the way they win games at the moment, it it has to. It's a little bit like Baltimore in a different way that they can only win one way. The way the Raiders can win the game is to control the clock, 35-minute time of possession, have a really solid running game. Nobody runs on the Buccaneers. Nobody. I mean, their, their run defense has been astonishingly good for a year and a half now. And John Gruden, I think, maps out his game plan like that because he knows his defense isn't very good. Now, the defense will get there. You know, we talk a lot about how they did rip it up and completely start it again. I think you can see the, the shoots of that in terms of talent all over that roster. But they're probably two or three defensive players away. They were without two guys in Abraham and um, Arnett who've had good seasons and are really important in their secondary as well. So I think the Raiders are this team. They're a good team, not a great team, have the potential to be a great team. The only longer-term worry for them would be, and he was really good against the Chiefs, is Derek Carr's the ultimate stats junkie who can put up a load of numbers but very often fails to win big games. Now, that would be the long-term worry for them. But yeah, I think this is about what they are. They're a team who's nowhere near as well-rounded as the Buccaneers and therefore we're losing the fourth quarter to them. But it was a, I think it was a 10-point game early in the fourth quarter. Fascinating game this Sunday for them and the Browns for the Raiders after what the Browns pulled off uh, against the Bengals in that ridiculous shootout in the second half uh, of the game uh, last uh, this past weekend. And so that's going to be one certainly to watch out for as I nearly hit myself in the face with the microphone. I mean, that, 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 game, uh, that, might for, that, that game might last for an hour and a half. Because the Raiders can't stop the run and the Browns can't stop anything and both teams are going to just want to run the ball. It's it, like Genuinely, that, could, that game could last for like two hours. That's the Raiders. Let's get on to the ugly. And it's time, Matthew Sherry, to talk about the New England Patriots. I'll just get the stats out guess, there, uh... first and foremost. Okay, yeah, just <laughs> one second for people watching the video. I'm just going to... Uh... There we go. Right, we've got... 
<laughs> I very nearly came on the podcast wearing a George Kittle jersey and a Christmas jumper over the top of it. Look, it was it was ugly. And it was I watched the Patriots back game game back from the weekend before and saw how ugly it had been on offense. And much like you last weekend, Sherry Height didn't want to read too much into it because of the two weeks off with COVID, because the fact that Cam Newton was the person who'd had COVID, because of the lack of practice. I wanted to put it down to all of that. But back-to-back games with no touchdown passes and multiple interceptions, the first time a Patriots quarterback has done that since 1995. Patriots 27-point loss, their largest at home in the entirety of Bill Belichick's reign, their second largest Overall, um, they had gone 286 straight games without losing three straight. It's the longest span between three game losing streaks in NFL history. And it's the first time they're more than two games back in the division since at this time in the season in 20 years. So is it fixable? No, I don't think it is, to be honest. I mean, this would usually be the this game against Buffalo this weekend would absolutely. I mean, the Patriots have had questionable moments not to this extent in the past and they've often had a big game around the corner and went and blown them off the field I just don't see that happening this time I mean you know the combination of Newton I mean he he just doesn't look healthy now he looked healthier the first couple of weeks now he doesn't I mean his mechanics have have gone completely to pot you know I think you're starting to see all the players who dropped out of impact them on defense I mean Juwan Bentley is not Dante Hightower and that shows up massively in the middle of their defense yeah, I think ultimately I, I thought all along that, you know, you trust Belichick to, to get himself out of any situation. I just think this is a bridge too far. You've got a team that is without seven or eight starters due to dropping out with COVID, trying to transition to a new quarterback and seemingly having no decent ones in the room. Um, I mean, so, yeah, I, I don't, mean, think, they, I don't the, the think they can get out of it. The 49ers defence also without seven starters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in theory. Completely. And that, like, that's the indictment. They just don't look a good team. And the first four weeks is so odd now because they were really good. You know, they were decent in week one against the Dolphins. I think that was a bad matchup for the Dolphins because nobody knew what their offence was going to look like. I think if they played next week, the Dolphins would beat them. And ultimately, I left the Kansas City game thinking there were a chance to be a real AFC contender. But, yeah, I think when you break that down, the Dolphins, it was a bad matchup for Miami in week one. They didn't know what their offense was going to look like. They're really good against Seattle in week two, threw the ball down the field, but I think we could throw the ball down the field on Seattle. The Raiders game was a good performance, but, again, a good matchup because they they don't stop the run, and that's what the Patriots wanted to do. But, yeah, I mean, I think they've fooled goal because the last two weeks has been dreadful. And you you could forgive Denver because of covid but this was just pathetic. I mean, genuinely, the most abject periods performance I've seen in in twenty years. It was it was desperate. I mean, they didn't even at no point did I even contemplate that they might get back into the game. So yeah, I'd, I'd, the, the, maybe they proved me wrong, but I'd, I really don't think it's it's fixable this season. I'm gonna come to Simon, but I, to the it was abject to the point where we beat you by twenty seven points, and I kind of struggled to enjoy it. You could have won by it. fifty as well. <laughs> I mean, I like, did enjoy it, but there was part of me going. You know, this is really bad on their part. I thought it was a well-coached, well-schemed game. You know, San Francisco did what they needed to do and yada, yada, yada. We could talk about that team and we probably will do over the coming weeks. I struggled to really enjoy it viscerally in the way that I thought I would enjoy beating you, Matthew. I'm not going to lie. Simon seemed to enjoy it greatly. Mate, I loved it. It was brilliant. So much amazing stuff happened. I mean, it was interceptions, fumbles, sacks. I have a serious Terrible tackling as well. When Matt was talking, I wasn't sure whether to play some violin music or get up and dance as a celebration for, you know, 
but yeah, I, a serious point though. I do wonder how much the hangover for, of coronavirus has affected has affected Cam Newton, and whether or not you know he potentially has long COVID. He does not look a. He just doesn't look nearly the same person that he was beforehand. Can I just also highlight the Jeff Garcia? ripping of Cam Newton's dress as some reason as to why he wasn't playing very well is one of the most ludicrous things I've ever seen in my entire life, ever. Bit of a weird one. He was a lovely, lovely man when we met him at the Super Bowl. I know, it was so bad. An odd piece of behaviour, I bet he's like like David Icke. I bet he's going to go that that route. (laughs) That far down. We think he's going to get that bad. the, The maybe good news, Matthew, is that you do face the Buffalo Bills this weekend who you want to talk about a Jekyll and Hyde team from the first four games of the season, well, there's one for you. Everyone will talk about how bad their offence looked, and it did look bad, and Josh Allen is is reverting to Tave a little bit, I think. But as bad as the Jets are offensively, I thought their defence looked way better just because Matt Milano was playing. Like, he is the centrepiece of that defence. Interestingly, got a grade of 60 by Pro Football's Focus, who done. <laughs> Love themselves some Matt Milano the way I do. But yeah, I mean, I, I think Milano makes a huge difference for them. So I think I would look for Buffalo in the second half of the season to be more like the Buffalo team that we've seen in the first half where the defence led. And if Allen can just get, I guess, to a level between where he was this weekend and where he was at the start of the season, they're an incredibly dangerous team still. And yeah, I would think that they'll win the game this weekend. Is this the pro football focus that had Stefan Gilmore as the 31st ranked cornerback last year? Who you then went and on put to him in their all pro team? That was weird. Yeah. He was, uh, he, was bare- that, he was barely the 31st <laughs> best cornerback at the weekend when George Kittle was tearing him apart. But other than that, I mean, uh, oh, can I just say that the Buffalo Bills uh, were the first team on Sunday to win a game without scoring a touchdown or punting for 79 years? Kudos for that. <laughs> That's stat. a great start. <laughs> Isn't it? That's incredible. I saw Thomas Morstead's tweet was fantastic about the fact that it was another game that he didn't have to punt for the Saints. And he like he just tweeted a picture of him and Drew Brees both holding up zeros and the word inactive again underneath, which I just thought was great. We still got one more ugly, and it was ugly. John Bostick on Andy Dalton, and more importantly, the reaction from the other players around him. Yeah, I would say a heinous tackle, but B that epitomizes what the Dallas Cowboys in 2020 are about. The fact that not a single player went over to Bostick and took the 15 yard penalty or an ejection for beating the crap out of him. Because uh, if I was Andy Dalton, I'd be like, wow, that's, uh, this is my team. These are my teammates. Not for me, Clive, on any level. I thought that was astonishing. I thought that was worse. The reaction of the Cowboys players was worse than the actual hit. And the hit was egregious. I agree. It was just, <laughs> it was desperate stuff. Right. Let's, uh, let's get into our likes dislikes and unsung heroes from the NFL this week. Uh, let's go with likes first. Uh, Matthew, what you got for us? Just that incredible slay of games and, and it being the 5pm start is the big one. Like It happens once a year. It's incredibly good when it does because you get to watch, like I watched the first half of Monday Night Football last night and didn't feel exhausted this morning. That one week of the year is, is outside of divisional round, which is my favourite week of the NFL year. This is the best week of the year in would, the NFL. Would it really hurt the NFL to move the kickoffs an hour earlier? I think it would help the primetime games get bigger numbers. The West Coast, yes, would get the games at 9 a.m., but I'll tell you what you do. If a West Coast team is travelling east, 
You just put it into the later window anyway. It doesn't matter if there's like five games in one, five games in the other. I think just do it. Just have it that the games start at 5 p.m. every week our time. Just pretty sure they're not going to move kickoff times for a few hundred thousand UK fans. What have I asked nicely? Simon? Devon White, who's just developing into one of the elite defenders in the NFL, you know, as good as Levon to David is, White may have exceeded him. I mean, he had three sacks, 11 tackles, two tackles for a loss at the weekend. He's just, he's a monster. Well, my like was going to be about the uh, the early window and just, just saying again, red zone, just isn't it just a wonderful, wonderful thing? Five one-score games, the most drama. Uh, and there is a couple of weeks like this a year where just those, that last half an hour is just you cannot keep up with it and it's so exciting and so brilliant and so we, yeah. we, it was on a personal one as well with it this week we had a we had to decorate all of our bedrooms so the kind of paint fumes and everything else we had to stay at my parents house over the weekend and my dad got him some tickets for a couple of games in London and he's watched them and enjoyed oh, them wow. and he's now reading the reading the book and he literally sat and watched it with me for six hours and it was great like I was just explaining the rules to him He's really engaged with it, and he absolutely loved the finish in that kind of early window as well. So, yeah, even for somebody who is very much not even a casual fan to, to enjoy it that much tells you about the magic of that combination. So my dislike, uh, which blends out of that, is looking forward to this weekend's schedule because we might be in for another weekend of a phenomenal finish like that on Red Zone. And the reason I say that is that our, our Monday night and Sunday night football games this week have three teams from the NFC East in them. We've got Eagles-Cowboys is Sunday night football. Giants-Buccaneers is Monday night football. Like, they might win by 70 points. It's (laughs) utterly, utterly farcical on a weekend where here are some of the games in the earlier slots. Raven-Steelers is a 6 p.m. game. Bills-Patriots is a 6 p.m. game. Browns-Raiders is a 6 p.m. game. Seahawks-49ers is a 9.25 game. Any of those in any of the... and even, I mean, even like Thursday night football is Panthers-Falcons. I know you can't flex something all the way back. To even Saints-Bears. I mean, we don't believe in the Bears, but there's still 5-2 and Ra- two versus 4. Ra- Dol- Dolphins-Rams is a great five, game. 5-2 and two Rams against the 3-3 three and three Dolphins with Tua's first game would be yeah. a great game. Oh, God, that's going to be so hard to, like, multi-screen, isn't it, on Sunday? This weekend has got some really great games, and it's a shame they're all on at the same time, basically. Mm. Uh, What didn't you like from the NFL this week, Simon? I know they won, but Cliff Kingsbury's play calling in that penultimate drive in uh, regulation when they were down by 10. So here's what happened. They were down by 10 with 6.44 to play. They get the ball back. It's 34-24. Their first six plays were Kenyon Drake run, Kyler Murray run, Kenyon Drake run, Kenyon Drake run, Kyler Murray run, Kenyon Drake run. There is now 3.52 left on the clock. They're still down by 10 points and they've advanced the ball to their own 45-yard line. I mean, that is horrendous play calling from a guy who's supposed to be an offensive genius. I know they won the game. Kudos them for that. But, God, he's getting away with bad coaching. And I'm not. I'm, I'm incredibly invested in my own view of Cliff Kingsbury, so I am biased. But it is an absolute joke that he is in charge of a 5-2 and two football team because... If anything, they're five and two in spite of him. Yeah. And also, he's a little Lego man with his Lego hair. Why, where's, <laughs> where's the grey hair? He looks like he's got a little painted Lego head. Why has he got any greys? Uh, good. Disgrace. Matthew, what did you like from the NFL this week? And you can't say That's Lego just hair. just by saying, I absolutely love the guy, but Tony Romo was absolutely dreadful in the fourth quarter of the Patriots game. Like... 
they were asking him about the Patriots issues. He's like, oh, I think we should talk about something else. It's like, no, Tony, your job literally right now is to analyse the problems with this Patriots team, no matter how much Bill Belichick is a good friend. And, and it was, I thought it was, it was really awkward. It was a really weird, I would urge anyone to go and listen to it in the fourth quarter, kind of the, the back and forth between Nance and Romo of him saying, like, making very clear he didn't want to talk critically of the Patriots. I mean, that, that, that's your job, Tony. That is something that you need to fix. I have to say, and I said this in the group this week, I, I think it's very clear from everyone that listens to this, sees us on social media, like they know the respect and love we have for Peter King as a journalist. But his unwillingness to say anything negative about the Bucks signing Antonio Brown this week was astonishing. Just honestly, uh, there is a Gary Gramling SI piece which breaks down for you point by point why this man has shown absolutely no reticence whatsoever for the deeds that he has done or alleged to have done and exactly why it's amazing that anyone should bring him back to the league regardless of talent. And I was really disappointed that we didn't see that from Peter King. And I do feel it's partially because a lot of his career over the last two decades has been predicated on an excellent relationship with Tom Brady, which is, he's talked about going back all the way with, to his first season in the and league. And with Jason Light and with Bruce Arians. Mm. So yeah. it's, it's, it was just a bit of a shame to see a couple, couple of different names there, not living love, up to... I love PK, though. Is, I, and I do. I absolutely do, in the same way I love Tony Romo, but just a couple of people letting themselves down a little. On, on Romo as well, tell CBS to get him back to being what he was like at the start. Like, why isn't he predicting players anymore? It's crap. It was so good. Get it back. Simon, unsung hero of this week. Bobby Turner. You and I had this conversation at the weekend, the running backs coach of the San Francisco 49ers. I just want to give you a list of players who he has essentially developed. Uh, Working at, and people probably not as old as me will not remember Robert Smith, but Robert Smith at Ohio State, who then went on to the Minnesota Vikings, then retired suddenly to become a doctor. Robert Smith, Mike Allstott at Purdue. And then a list of Terrell Davis, Alandis, Gary, Mike Anderson, Alfred Morris, Devonta Freeman, Peyton Hillis, uh, Noshon Moreno, Matt Breeder, uh, Raheem Mostert, Coleman, McKinnon, Jeff Wilson, and then Jermichael Hasty, the next off the line. It's just an astonishing job in his 25 years of career. I mean, that is a who's who of running back talent. And you look at most of them. You know, Terrell Davis, what, fifth rounder, Alfred Morris, sixth rounder, Devonta Freeman, fourth rounder, Peyton Hillis, late rounder. Notion Moreno was a first rounder, but, you know, Mostert, Breeder, uh, Wilson, Hasty, you know, these guys are, you know, back end of the draft, free agent kind of guys. And he's turned them all into, you know, starting running backs. Amazing. He massively banged the table for Terrell Davis as well at the start. Like, yeah. He was really an important reason why Davis was on the roster before making that kind of hitting preseason that transformed him from likely cut to greatest running back in the NFL. He had that run, didn't he? Of Terrell Davis into Alandis Gary into Mike Anderson, which was just astonishing, you know, when you just where he came from. I've always said that, you know, you can plug any guy into that system, but actually it might be that you can plug any guy into that coach. coach. And, yeah. and I think there's a few of them. Dante Skarnecchia is another one. I think there's, you know, a few sort of coaches who are just... Should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, agreed. Skarnecchia and Turner, Should be definitely. positional coaches in the Hall. Matthew, unsung hero. I'm not sure how Unsung is, but I think in the fact that they lost the game, but Joe Brady is doing everything that he did at LSU with Carolina's offense. It's just, I mean, I love Matt Rule more than anybody, but Brady is the next guy. He would be my top of my list as a head coaching candidate. And it goes against, I generally like guys who've got a bit more experience, but he's just so good. I mean, he is a Sean McVeigh type. And, and you, you look at how effectively Carolina again moved the ball 
and you look at their talent, you know, McCaffrey's out, Bridgewater is not a guy who you would associate with kind of amazing offensive production. I mean, even in New Orleans last year, Bridgewater was, you know, they won games because of a good defence and because he didn't turn it over. He's now moving the ball on virtually every drive with Joe Brady. And actually, I think there's an argument that since Joe Brady left the Saints, their offence hasn't been as good as it was in the preceding years, as much as Peyton gets the, the majority of the credit. So, yeah, I think he's exceptional. And I know Harry, our social guy, wants to do this, but we're thinking about starting a campaign for, for Cincinnati to hire him next year so he can finish the work that he began with Joe Or Brady. imagine Joe Brady and, and Trevor Lawrence in New York. Yeah. That will be terif- terrifying as fans of the FCEs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, I know it's slightly weird to pick an unsung hero who's a starting quarterback in the NFL. And in the city in which he plays, uh, he is not an unsung hero. But considering all the crap we've given Baker Mayfield for the last three or four weeks, 22 of 23 to end this game, seven straight scoring drives, yes, against the Bengals, but a Bengals team that have had some good halves of football. The second half against the Ravens, their defense was absolutely outstanding. The first half against the Colts, they were absolutely outstanding. Uh, He had a franchise record, 21 consecutive completions that was only broken up by having to spike the ball on the game-winning drive. And yet, when I watched a bunch of American coverage on Sunday night and Monday morning, he was getting absolutely zero love from anyone who wasn't covering the game from inside the stadium. So I just wanted to say it, that yes, he's probably still not the quarterback of the future, but that was a great performance on Sunday. He made some fantastic throws and it all came after Odell Beckham went out of the game. So maybe that's part of the problem. But he's, I was, I was going to say, he's a better player when he's not having to feed the number one receiver. And the ego catches. It's not, it's not just catches. feed him the ball, is it? That, so, he is a better player when he's not having to do that. I, I thought he had a really, really good game on Sunday and deserved some love for it and wasn't getting any, certainly, in the States. So I'm getting... I, would never, I would never wish an injury on somebody by any stretch of the <laughs> imagination, but it is no coincidence that the football gods decided to fight back after his ridiculous COVID comments. <laughs> like, just this is, stupid. I, this I mutual mean, respect that they have. This is literally a man who earlier told us he had no problem with Antonio Brown getting injured on his first snap yeah. as a Tampa Bay oh, Buccaneer exactly. so he could keep rooting for them. Uh, it's but understandable it, it took 20 minutes for the word to turn <laughs> I mean who, who doesn't disagree with Matthew that's the big question really top stuff boys as always check out the work we do on the YouTube channel Gridiron on UK Gridiron on Instagram and Gridiron on Twitter uh, there'll be more of this every week of the season of course but reaction and build up to the weekend's games uh, we'll talk trade deadline I'm sure quite a bit as we get towards it next week as well so keep an eye on there for all the news and reaction to that as well and the new magazine involving what 75,000 words on Russell Wilson or something uh yeah I I, it's gonna be a great read I know that already and BYU's young quarterback who's gonna end up in the first round it's a very Wilson it's Wilson's issue isn't it I I almost had Luke uh, as an interviewee (laughs) (laughs) I I was gonna put Tom Hanks as uh his ball from Castaway on the front cover the Wilson Very good. Very good. Uh, So otherwise, thank you very much for listening and watching. This has been The Gridiron Show.